Fishing for a show aimed at the outdoor enthusiast? Tune in to Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World, Saturday at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. Eastern on Rural Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 147, and on the Sirius XM app. Welcome in to Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World, brought to you by Bass Pro Shops. If you love fishing, hunting, and the great outdoors and want to make it even better, you're in the right place with host Rob Keck. Your adventure starts right here. Good morning and welcome, and thanks for tuning in to Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World, brought to you by Bass Pro Shops, where truly your adventure starts right here. I'm Rob Keck, your host, and it's great to be with you. And what a wonderful show we have for you today during this holiday season. How special it is. Let me tell you, on today's show, the focus is going to be on wild game preparation and cooking with the sporting chef and America's leading authority on the preparation of fish and game. Our guest is cookbook author, producer, host of the Sporting Chef and Dead Meat TV, and is none other than Scott Layseth. For more than two decades, the chef has traveled the country sharing his Short attention span, cooking style that's fast, easy, delicious, and very entertaining. And I know some of you can catch him. Well, all of you can. Some of you are regularly catching the Sporting Chef and Dead Meat shows on the Sportsman's Channel, regional affiliates, and untamed sports. Some of you may remember Scott through HGTV's Homegrown Cooking with Paul James. And for all you Ducks Unlimited members, you know Scott through his column in DU's Magazine and heading up DU's Culinary Council. You can find his recipes at Ducks Unlimited's website, sportingchef.com, and on his weekly blog at whitetail.winchester.com. Scott lives in Northern California. He's been in the food business for over three decades, where he's worked his way up the corporate ladder with a Western restaurant chain before opening his own restaurant and catering business. And today, well, he manages his time between producing TV, writing columns and cookbooks, and making personal appearances throughout the U.S., He's been with us before, and he's with us right now. So let's welcome back the sporting chef himself, Scott Layseth. Scott, welcome back. This is the time of year when I get a lot of questions about how to cook stuff. Well, I can imagine. I mean, it's hunting season. People have a lot of game. They're wanting to know what to do with it. And I've got to ask you, on the Layseth table, what will it be? (laughs) And you know, this is funny. I haven't quite decided what I'm going to do, but I usually keep it simple and I keep it domestic. This year, I'm only feeding about three people, so it'll be plated, but I'm not sure what yet. I've I've spent the better part of this year not being home, so um, I'll check out the inventory and see what I end up shooting between <laughs> now and then. I, I, I'm not a food snob, but the green bean casserole and the jello thing with the cream cheese is not on my table. <laughs> well... I hear you. You know, there's lots of ways to prepare a turkey, you know, both wild and domestic. In fact, you know, during my career at the National Wild Turkey Federation, we produced two cookbooks, Wild About Turkey, Volume 1 and 2. And I'm sure I know you have many recipes for turkey, but tell us your favorite and why. You know, I cook my turkey in parts. Um, I never cook a whole wild turkey. They look okay in a photo. Mm-hmm. But those legs and thighs require low and slow cooking. They're so sinewy. Um, the breast, people complain about their wild turkey breast being dry, and it's only because they've cooked it too long. Yep. So, I mean, very simply, I'm going to brine the turkey breasts, cook them until they're about 150, 155 degree internal temperature. The legs and thighs, I brown and braise. Then the bodies I make stock out of. 
Uh, with a domestic turkey, it's a whole different deal. I'm going to brine the whole bird. Um, I'm going to brine it for 24 hours, pat it dry. I don't care how you cook it. I get it to 165 degrees, and then it goes into a cooler for at least two hours. Um, mm. And this is the part that surprises people. You can cook that domestic turkey well in advance. It can sit in that cooler for about three to four hours, and it's still super hot. Um, after it's cooked to 165, I put it put it into the smallest cooler it'll fit into. Um, if there's airspace between the bird and the lid, put down some foil and clean, dry towels for insulation. Close that lid. If anybody tries to open the lid for two hours, hit them in the head or wrap the thing with duct tape, and it will absolutely fall apart. When you go to pull the turkey out by the legs, they come off in your hand. Golly, day! I've got to try that. Never have. And I guess if I was paying attention, watching your TV show with a more regular type uh, approach, I would have known that. Well, look, we're going to take our first break. When we come back, I want to ask you if you turkey hunt and how you handle a gobbler after the kill. Do you hang it, age it, or whatever? But anyway, Scott, we got lots to talk about. We're going to move to that first break. When we return, we're going to continue our conversation where we are cooking up a storm with the host of Sporting Chef and Dead Meat TV. Scott Laseth. This and a whole lot more coming right up, and I'm Rob Keck, your host here on Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. This is a public service announcement test from TakeMeFishing.org to determine if you need a fishing license and boat registration before heading out on the water. Let's begin. Are you a bear? Do you have a beak? Does your name rhyme with old beagle? Do you dart in front of cars? Here's a tough one. Do you have plumage? Do you rub your body against things to mark them? Do you have webbed feet? No, I mean like a... Were you hatched? Do you have fur? I'm not talking back hair. Does your boat fly south for the winter with the other boats? Regardless of how you answer, you need to be licensed and registered because it helps local conservation efforts protect the very natural resources you enjoy boating and fishing in for generations to come. Do your part at TakeMeFishing.org. And welcome back to Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. If you've just tuned in, we're fixing to crank up the grill with the host of The Sporting Chef and Dead Meat TV, Scott Lyseth. Scott Right before the break, I wanted to ask you, number one, do you turkey hunt? And even if you don't, talk to us about how do you handle a gobbler after the kill? You know, I've had people say you ought to hang it and age it. Some say you ought to clean it right away. What say you? Well, I do turkey hunt, and I have been since I was a teenager. We had them in Virginia growing up. Um, I've had them on the roof of my house here in Northern California, So I, and we ran into a whole mess of them during our pheasant opener, so... I hunt them more in the spring than the fall, but if the opportunity presents itself in the fall, I have no problem harvesting a turkey. Um, uh-huh. I don't hang them. Um, I, if, if once it's been processed and plucked and cleaned, I will put it on a rack in the refrigerator with a pan underneath and let it age in there for three or four days, and that seems mm-hmm. to help tenderize it. But if you don't get to that part, it doesn't make that big of a difference. Again, I'm not cooking a whole gobbler. Um, I'm cooking it in parts, um, mm-hmm. and so it's you know when you when you braise something um, or make soup stock out of it, hanging it doesn't really do a whole lot of good. And if you just don't cook it so long, those turkey breasts are not dried out. Yeah, 
Well, I've got to ask, and you've just touched on it here in your last response. How do you clean turkey? Do you pluck it? Do you skin it? Or do you breast it? Well, if the breast is, if the skin on the breast is intact, I love to leave it in there. It doesn't have a whole lot of fat on it, like some birds, so it doesn't help that much. What's good about the skin is I will separate the skin carefully from the breast, and then between the skin and the breast, you can put butter, fresh herbs, garlic, maybe some bacon in there, and that's going to add fat to the breast when it's cooking. Um, that skin on the outside, unless it's nice and crispy, I don't really care for it anyway, rubbery, um, Turkey skin isn't my thing, but it's good for holding in flavor against the breast. Mm -hmm. Well, by the way, as you well know, it's imperative we make a good, clean kill. And, you know, I would refrain from body shooting the gobbler if you want to eat it and focus on that shot string on the head and neck of the bird. But shotguns, as you well know, they're going to scatter some shot and some may find their way into the breast meat. Scott? What is your recommendation on handling that breast meat that may have a few pellets lodged in there? You know, you can usually put a little patch on them, um, whether even if you wanted to stuff a breast that's been hit a few too many times with pellets. Um, if you kind of butterfly it out and put some some fresh uh, basil or, or cheese or herbs or, and then roll the whole thing up, and if you want to wrap that whole thing in bacon... It gives it that nice, crusty bacon outer shell, or prosciutto works really well, too. Uh-huh. Um, you can also take that wild turkey. If it's really, really shot up, you can cook it any way you want and then just shred it and make like you would with chicken salad, and it works mm-hmm. just great. If you put it, if you put those messed up pieces along with some of the legs and thighs, you put it into one of those Instapot quick um, pressure cookers now, it all, in about 30 minutes, it all turns into perfectly shredded meat that you can put on a salad or make into a patty. Sounds good. Well, let, let's say you've cleaned your bird, but you're not going to eat it right away. What is your recommended way then to freeze it? You vacuum seal it, freeze it in water, put it in a Ziploc freezer bag. What say you? You know, there's no better way than a vacuum seal. Um, it makes a big, big difference. But again, I don't vacuum seal a whole bird because I'm not going to cook a whole bird. I'm going to vacuum seal... The legs and thighs sections separate from the breast, and I'm going to hang on to the carcasses but not vacuum seal them. When I get enough quail, chucker, turkey, pheasant, rabbit carcasses, I'm going to roast all that up and make a really good upland game stock. Wow. Well, how about marinating turkey breasts? Tell us how you do that because I know you've got some very special, easy, simple to make and use marinades. Tell us about that. What I learned in South Africa with every piece of meat that I ate there last year Olive oil, garlic, salt, and pepper, 24 hours. So if you take take that wild turkey breast and then just let it bathe in olive oil, garlic, salt, and pepper, it's going to add fat and flavor, and it's still going to taste like a turkey. We, we go to unusual lengths to make our game not taste like game, and I love the way a wild turkey tastes on its own. If you wanted to put a little squeeze of lemon in there just before it comes out of the marinade to give it a high note, that works great, but I don't use overly powerful marinade flavors for my um, for my turkey breast. Um, for the home people that want to do it really, really simply, an age-old thing that we've done for years is just use a good Italian dressing, which is, you know, olive oil, seasonings, um, a little bit of vinegar in there. But just be careful when you're using anything that's got vinegar or, 
or lemon juice or anything acidic, because if you leave it in the marinade too long, it'll turn that wild turkey breast into mush. Mm-hmm. Good point. Well, how about if you're going to flip it on the grill then? Any tips there? I mean, you've mentioned about not overcooking. Give us a tip there as well. That is the key. I mean, if you get a meat thermometer and you've got that wild turkey breast on there, first of all, don't put it onto a screaming hot grill. You want it to be medium-low, take your time, because especially if you've got a big gobbler breast um, and you haven't butterflied it, you want to leave it on there full thickness, um, if you put it on too hot of heat, it's going to be really dried out on the outside before it's cooked on the inside. So take your time with it. Once you've marked it on that grill, if you just take a pan and put it over the top of it so that it kind of cooks from the top and the bottom, um, it'll help cook it all the way through. But take your time and don't cook it past about 155, 160 degrees tops um, in the, on the inside of that turkey breast. Yeah, great point. You know, Scott, many hunters, especially those traveling out of state, you know, we've got people want to hunt, I mean, for their slams all over, and they simply breast out a gobbler, discard the rest. And I want to mention here, by the way, you know, there's some states out there like Montana, it's illegal only to take the breast and then throw the legs and thighs and wings away. And discarding those parts is considered wanton waste. Well, with all that said, what is your recommended way to prepare that dark meat of the wild turkey, the legs, the thighs, what you referred to as sinewy and, uh, you know, certainly different than that white meat of the breast? I go low and slow. Um, So I brown and braise. So if you take the wild turkey legs, and it's best if you have a few of them, and you can actually throw in your your pheasant legs and thighs, other kind of birds like that 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 have the same kind of characteristics. You brown them, put them into a roasting pan, Throw some celery, carrot, onion in there, and either about an inch of chicken stock or white wine or a combination of both. Cover it up with foil. Put it into a low-temp oven, like 3, 325, and it's going to take several hours before that low, moist heat is going to break down that sinewy leg and thighs. And I don't care Mm -hmm. how long you've cooked that leg and thigh section. The thighs are going to fall right off, but that lower section... Some of these birds, some of the older birds, you could cook it for days and still beat somebody over the head with it. But it, it's really good for making soup stock. So don't mm-hmm. waste any part of your bird. It kills me when people do the same thing with their pheasants when they breast it out and throw the rest away. And then their recipe calls for chicken stock or whatever. And they use a bouillon cube, which is just this salty little cube, instead of making stock out of the carcass, out of the parts out of the bones that are left over, you roast them, throw it into a stock pot with some cold water, throw in some herbs, and just let it simmer all night, and you're going to have the most delicious wild turkey stock that just beats the heck out of anything you can get out of a bouillon cube or a can. Man, sounds so good. Look, we got to take our next break. Folks, we return. We're going to continue our tingling of our taste buds with recipes from the wild with the sporting chef and the host of Dead Meat TV, Scott Laseth. This and a whole lot more coming right up and i'm rob keck your host here on bass pro shops outdoor world thanks for joining us and we will be right back 
Sirius XM's Rural Radio is your guide to the agricultural markets, where expert analysts and traders join our discussion live. Your information. Open up the farm and the challenges we face. You can learn how to do it for yourself. Rural Radio, your gateway to the rural lifestyle. The latest information about hunting, fishing, and more. Rural Radio is the leader in Western sports. We talk about the latest in Western sports, professional rodeo, bull riding. Sirius XM's Rural Radio. 147. Or listen on your phone when you get out of your car with the Sirius XM app. In 1912, Theodore Roosevelt said, There could be no greater issue than that of conservation in this country. More than a century later, his statement has never been more meaningful. The Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership promotes Roosevelt's commitment to the sporting life by guaranteeing that all Americans have quality places to hunt and fish. Visit trcp.org to learn more and take action. And welcome back to Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. Thanks for joining us, and if you've just tuned in, we're privileged to have with us the sporting chef himself, Scott Layseth. Scott, you know, we were just talking uh, uh, there at the end about not throwing those legs and thighs and wings away from turkeys and pheasants and others. We even go to that, that length with doves. You know, a lot of guys, just easy to pop that breast out, but I've got one one farmer, one peach farmer, that if you go, when we're cleaning our doves, if you just pop the breast out and you're not plucking it, leaving intact the legs and thighs, neck, and what have you, you don't get invited back. So I want to mention that, you know, on those doves, there's a lot of good meat there as well. We, we just waste entirely too much of a lot of our game, whether it's grinding every hindquarter into sausage or throwing away legs and thighs and bodies and things in general. And I think, I think it's a matter of people just not knowing what to do with it. Yeah, but I do too. In general, I don't care what the animal is. If it's a tougher cut, cook it low heat, take your time, low moist heat, and it will eventually be, will fall off the bone on the better parts. You know, the, the loins, the back straps, the breasts of the animals, cook it fast and hot and not past medium rare is my, is my personal bias course on something like a wild turkey you want to be a little you want it to be past medium rare but a little pink is okay this isn't chicken so a little mm-hmm. pink it's going to continue to cook as it rests for a few minutes and if your wild turkey breast is dry it's entirely your fault got it well scott during the rest of this segment i want to talk about your career and back up even further where this all began and i want to ask you how did you get introduced to the outdoors and when did you start hunting and fishing Early on, my dad was an Alabama farm boy, came from Alabama farm stock, and so we had plenty of opportunities to hunt and fish in northern Virginia. My neighbors would call me uh, when their bass were eating their baby ducks in the spring, so I'd go catch them and then stick them in another neighbor's pond so I could catch them again. Um, We had, you know, it was back when we had, there were lots of quail in in northern Virginia, and um, Mm. I would go up to the Blue Ridge and shoot Turkeys and grouse. We had turkeys within a half hour of our house. Um, we could go to the Chesapeake Bay to fish. We could go up into the Blue Ridge and go trout fishing. Um, and so uh, on weekends, one of the parents, even before I could drive, would drop us off in the Appalachian chain somewhere. And then we'd tell them where to pick us up on Sunday night and we'd fish our way through or hunt our way through. Sounds very familiar. I think so many listeners out there would probably relate to that extremely well, having done uh-huh. something real similar. And 
You know, I assume you didn't wake up one day and said, okay, I want to be a chef. Or maybe you did. I don't know. Tell us about how you were introduced into the cooking field. You know, it never crossed my mind. I always cooked when I was a kid. I remember the first bird I cooked, it was a jacksnipe that I shot <laughs> somewhere kind of in, the, in rural Virginia. And I cooked it for about an hour and a half. It tasted horrible. I, it was so bad. I had cooked it so long. My brothers were giving me a hard time about doing the whole thing. Um, and then I, I since learned much more about cooking. When I was finishing school, I went to school at University, University of Arizona. Um, and I would shoot limits of quail before my morning class. I was working as a bouncer in a college bar. And eventually, when I got my degree in psychology, they said, hey, man, would you rather go to Tempe and be a manager? And I got a two-week training course on how to be a manager, bartender, and cook. <laughs> and a few years down the road, I was vice president of the 33-unit chain. So it's not a well-planned career path. But I've always loved to cook. My mom taught art in the Smithsonian. So wow. Maybe that's where the artistic bent came from there. So, um, you know, it's a matter of expression, and it's changed. When I first started hunting, people did not say, um, I think what I'm going to do with this is a little marinade and then a balsamic berry reduction. They'd say, man, I can't believe you missed that duck with his feet down in your face. We weren't talking about cooking. I think the Food Network changed everything, and now it's all about Chipotle's and who knows what, and it changes every week. But my food and my cooking is still very straightforward. I don't try and out-chef anybody. Um, you know, I've been doing, I've been in the food and beverage business since 1978. So seen a few trends come and go, and I still like to keep mine uh, pretty straightforward. You know, I've run into so many people, and I know that you have, that, that say, I don't like wild game. How do you respond to somebody like that? You know, the first thing I ask them is, how do you how do you get your how do you like your steaks? And if they say, you know, I like my steaks, well done. I don't I don't want to see any red in there. I'm thinking, all right, here's the challenge. Somebody, whoever prepared their first duck for them, you know, they they just overcooked it. Um, yep. And if they give me a chance to actually cook it for them. You know, I'll take a duck breast that's been brined for a few hours in salt water, slap it into a skillet, and cook it rare to medium rare, and I'll say, tell me if this tastes like what you're used to. And they'll go, man, that doesn't taste gamey at all. Uh -huh. Don't blame the duck, man, I'm telling you. I hear you. Well, looking uh, at uh, where you have come from, where you're at today, I know there's probably some folks out there saying, you know, I wish I could get into a career like Scott. And, uh, you know, you're into television, you're into being an author, uh, you write, tell us about that. How, how did this, this food industry that you were in then lead you into to being on the big screen? I had a restaurant in Northern California and people, and we had game on the menu. And then people said, how come mine doesn't taste like yours? So they would bring us their fishing game and we would prepare it for them at the restaurant. Um, Somebody noticed in Sacramento there was an HGTV production about to start. They asked if I wanted to be the back-of-the-house chef. I ended up doing 185 shows with them on both sides of the camera. Never planned on doing that. <laughs> Never planned on being on TV. Um, and that, and right after that, I started doing my own sporting chef show on a, a southeastern U.S. network. And I've been on Sportsman Channel since they started 
13, 14 years ago. Really, uh, it was just a matter of opportunity. It's hard. It would be hard to describe how you could actually go about being an, a TV chef. Um, there's an awful lot of luck involved. Um, and I'm very, very thankful that along the way, I've had a lot of help from people that, and a lot of opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have. The good thing about today for people that want to do this is you can start online. You can, you can hone your craft on YouTube. Um, and just keep in mind that what people aren't looking to see is the same old thing. You know, they've, they've seen people whispering in trees on deer hunts. And so <laughs> if, if you want to do something like this, think about how you can make it a little bit different and how you can make it entertaining and, and educational and not just all about you and the biggest deer you can shoot. Yep. Good advice. And, you know, here before we take our next break, how about any advice further on making a career in this field? You've, you've just touched on it. Give me three points that we can share with a listener out there saying, I want to do this. Three points that's going to be very important besides having the good luck and the good fortune, like you pointed out. Make your content unique. If it's, already, if it's been done 150 times before, don't do that. Um, take as much time as you need to do a quality production. Have people that don't like you take a look at it and tell you what they think of it. And then build that audience online before you're going to go anywhere else with it. If you go to Sportsman Channel and say, I've got a show, I've got a great idea for a TV show, they'll say, well, isn't that something? But if you go to them and say, I've got, 100,000 followers on Instagram, and here's what I do, then they're going to pay attention, and the sponsors will pay attention. But um, if you're just doing it so you can get a free elk hunt in Colorado, you're probably not going to be all that engaging, and you won't be around for very long. Yep. Good points. Excellent points. Well, folks, when we return, we're going to continue our visit with Scott. This and much more coming right up. I'm Rob Keck, and you're listening to Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World, and we will be right back. Years ago, sportsmen led the first revolt to save what was left of North America's dwindling wildlife resources, and it took purpose and commitment. This crusade began with Theodore Roosevelt's forming the Boone and Crockett Club in 1887. Since then, sportsmen and women have been at the forefront of every environmental revolution in this country, providing the vision, funding, and manpower to establish and run what has become the most successful system of wildlife management in the history of mankind. Yet to this day, our story remains relatively unknown, especially to those who don't hunt or fish. We must tell this story, but we need to do more than that. We must insist that others who claim to be conservationists but work tirelessly on campaigns to end all hunting honestly examine the evidence and then ask themselves where would the wildlife they cherish be without sportsmen's dollars and without sportsmen's efforts. Conservation had a beginning, but it has no end. To learn more, visit booneandcrocketclub.com. And welcome back to the second half hour of Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. And we're privileged today to have with us America's leading authority on the preparation of fish and game, a cookbook author, producer and host of The Sporting Chef and Dead Meat TV that airs on Sportsman's Channel, our good friend Scott Lyseth. Scott, successful hunters are faced with the question, well, what's my next step with this deer that I've just taken? You know, in, in many cases, people... Uh, don't want to handle they don't want to keep their deer meat and there's programs like hunters and farmers uh, feeding the hungry and all kinds of uh, 
uh, giveaways to, to needy people and, and what have you. But here in the south, uh, we obviously have warmer temperatures than, let's say, up north and out west. And now I'm talking about what are we going to do if we decide to keep the deer? And uh, we certainly don't want that meat to spoil. What do you advise? Okay, the deer's on the ground. Give us the next steps. Get that deer processed as fast as you can. Last year, I shot a blacktail on the central coast of California. It was 100 degrees on opening day. So, I mean, it's almost a panic to get that deer field-dressed in the back of whatever we transported it in and get it over and get it get it broken down and in the locker as soon as possible. If the meat spoils, there's just nothing you can do about it. And a lot of what people attribute to gamey taste is just that. Uh, if you're in the South, and I've spent a lot of time in the South, and I see guys driving around with deer in the back of their trucks on a hot day and you know, we wouldn't do that. If if Tyson did that with our chickens, we would be outraged. But apparently people <laughs> think it's okay to do that with your deer. So um, when you get it broken down, it needs to be clean, cooled as fast as possible. Some people say pack it with ice. Some people say you don't want it to get wet. I don't think it's all that critical. If it does happen to get wet, I'm going to wipe it dry. Um, and obviously you want to keep it sterile, wipe it with clean cloth, but really getting that cooled as fast as you can will make every bit of difference. Um, I like to age most deer for about a week before I start breaking them down. If you don't have that kind of room, you can take a shoulder after it's been excised from the animal, put it on a rack in the, in the uh, refrigerator with a drip pan underneath. If you leave that in there for a week, that'll help tenderize that. Um, that's just get it off the ground and into the cooler as fast as you can. Well, you know, many times when a hunter takes his deer to the processor, he's then faced with selecting what kind of cuts of meat he should take. And, uh, you know, there's so many people that just have no idea. Maybe it's first-time hunters. Maybe it's hunters that have given the meat away, but they decide to keep one. So when that hunter takes his deer or elk or antelope or whatever to the processor, why don't you share with us some of the options on cuts of meat that you might advise them to, to actually have that processor make so that it's simple for them when they go to cook it? The one that kills me the most is save the back straps and the tenderloins and grind everything else, either into sausage or burger or whatever, because they just don't know the options. Um, on that hind quarter, if, if you want to have the processor um, if if they won't take each muscle out and separate it, then say just trim up the hind quarter, leave it whole, and then don't freeze it. And when I get it from the processor, I'm going to take my knife and remove each one of those, the top round, the bottom round, the sirloin, each one of those pieces of muscle. I'm going to trim all the silver skin out. I'll make stock out of the bones and trim that's left over. But the key is not to grind everything. Um, you can take that whole front shoulder and just and rub it with olive oil, salt, and pepper, brown it, and braise it like I talked about with the legs on the turkeys. And in about 8 to 10 hours, um, if it's been low heat, covered up, a little bit of liquid in there, you'll be able to grab that shoulder bone and pull it out, and the meat falls off. And that, So that moist heat does all the work. Um, and that's parts that you might spend hours tediously trying to trim away usable parts from that shoulder. 
I like to let the oven do the work. Um, mm-hmm. The back straps and tenderloins, you know, that's a, that's a separate deal. Um, the shanks are some of the best part of a deer that we throw away, and I'm just I, it's it's disappointing that there's only four of them on a deer. But those shanks are another low and slow thing. They're as good as asabuco. They're as good, good as anything you get in a restaurant. But you got to go low and slow. It's going to fall off the bone, and you're going to get really, really great flavor out of it. Well, most hunters, uh, well, they get some of their meat ground into burger. And the question that uh, oftentimes come up from the processor, do you want some beef fat added? And if so, how much? You know, maybe they've heard or maybe they've tried it in the past and uh, they couldn't get that burger to really stick together and, and hold together when they put it on the grill. What do you say about adding something like beef fat to ground venison? I, I do. I add beef fat or pork fat when I grind. Um, and by the way, to grind, what I prefer to do is to take um, whole muscle meat and grind it as I need it for burger. It tastes like a fresher burger to me as opposed to grinding everything else into quarter or half-pound patties. Um, and when I grind it, I just use cut-up pork shoulder because it seems to have just the right amount of fat um, to lean. And I'll take about about 20% of my grind has at least fatty beef or pork shoulder, or you can use bacon end, bacon trim ends, the cheap stuff, and grind that in with the meat. Um, that's my preferred because there are a lot of people that like to just have straight ground venison i'm not one of them it's just a little too lean for me Mm -hmm. we're the same way well i've got a walk-in cooler up in my barn here at my home that i like to age my deer in fact i had an uncle that was in the butcher business his entire career and he told me he said if you go to a fine dining restaurant and you order a filet you're going to find that it's been aged three to four weeks and so i like to age it at least two weeks preferably three why don't you talk to us about aging venison? Well, and, and if you don't, you know, I had a, I had a friend of mine last season um, from Alabama who called and said, man, uh, I do exactly what you do, and I've eaten your food a whole bunch of times. Um, I'm eating this backstrap, and it tastes fine, but it's really tough. So I asked him, when, when did you shoot it? He said, well, yesterday. I said, well, <laughs> maybe that's the problem. So... You know, you haven't allowed it to age. You haven't allowed it. You have, you've got to go. We've got rigor mortis first, and then we've got the, how the enzymes do their thing to break down the connective tissue. And for a larger animal, it's going to take every bit of two weeks for that to get tender. You can, let's say you've hung it for a week, you can take a, a, a chunk out of that hindquarter, throw it into a skillet, see how it behaves. If it's still really tough, let it hang for another week or two. Um, you know, when you were talking about the domestic steaks and, and how tender they are, it's not unusual to age them for 28 days. You've heard of a 28-day aged steak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be so much more tender than something you shot yesterday, and it's just it's the process. It's the enzymatic process that, that the animal has to go through in order to break down the collagen and make it really, really tender. Well, look, we're going to take our next break. Scott, great information. We're going to continue this informative discussion here in the next segment right here on Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. It's Rob Kack, and we will be right back. Embrace the rustic elegance of a bygone era at Big Cedar Lodge. Located 10 miles south of Branson, Missouri, Big Cedar Lodge is a masterpiece that brings together natural beauty and contemporary luxury. 
Visitors are invited to explore and experience some of the most popular amenities here. At Big Cedar Lodge, you'll find casual dining options in an unparalleled atmosphere, with signature dishes and local favorites highlighting classic menu items. Take in spectacular views at Devil's Pool, live entertainment at the Buzzard Bar, or relax at Truman Coffee and Cafe, all surrounded by the natural ambiance of the Ozark Mountains. One of the newest additions to the property is Cedar Creek Spa. This 18,000 square foot world-class spa is a private oasis with soothing pools, fireplaces, and a full-service salon. In addition to the complete spa experience, there are private suites available. All of these features make Big Cedar an ideal destination for weddings, corporate gatherings, and more. Families have been visiting Big Cedar Lodge for generations, looking to experience what many call a little piece of heaven on earth. To learn more, visit BigCedar.com or call 1-800-BC-LODGE. And we are back. And thanks for tuning in to Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. If you've just tuned in, we're privileged to have with us America's leading authority on the preparation of fish and game, the sporting chef himself, Scott Layseth. Scott, do you have a favorite venison recipe? If you had one recipe yeah, my... out, of, out of a deer, what would it be? Um, I like to take backstraps. And I like backstraps more than tenderloins because they're a little toothier. I, I you know, mm-hmm. tenderloins yep. are easy. Um, I just prefer a backstrap. And you'll notice on that backstrap, the grain doesn't exactly run perpendicular to the spine. It's got a kind of an odd angle to it. Um, I like to take that, and I will butterfly about a eight to ten inch chunk of that backstrap, um, and then I like to stuff it with things. I like to put a little blue cheese, and with the blue cheese, I'll put. Some breadcrumbs, because if you don't put some breadcrumbs on top of your cheese stuffing, when it's done, all the cheese runs out. The breadcrumbs kind of keep it intact. Um, so I'll take some fresh herbs and some blue cheese, a little breadcrumb, um, maybe some prosciutto, and then roll the whole thing up and tie it and slap it on a grill until it's about 130-degree internal temperature. Take it out, let it rest for a few minutes, cut the string off, slice it into medallions, put a little sauce over the top Ooh. of it. And that could be a very simple, like a balsamic wine reduction or a demi-gloss that I made with the roasted deer bones. Um, and it's, it's really, it's really good. <laughs> How about a marinade? Do you recommend, uh, you know, marinating that backstrap first? Yep. Never hurts to put a little, add a little flavor to it and help enhance the flavor. And again, that, that olive oil, garlic, salt, and pepper. If you want to put some red wine, some, um, some fresh herbs, that kind of thing, and just and just leave it in there for 24 hours. Just avoid putting in a whole lot of acidic ingredients because that'll actually end up toughening up or turning your your meat into mush. Um, and then, of course, don't cook it too long. Let's fire up the grill. Given the choice on which grill to use, would it be gas or charcoal, and why? You know, I used to be a strictly wood-fired uh, wood charcoal grill with all that smoky flavor. But, you know, I found that I'm I'm just fine with gas grills. And you go to, you know, you go to a restaurant and they're cooking, most of your steaks are cooked over a gra- gas grill and they taste just fine. And as that fat drips down under the heating element, it creates smoke. It may not be as uh, as prominent as wood fire smoke or charcoal smoke, but I'm cooking all over the world on different types of cooking apparatus and so 
as long as it's hot and I can control the heat, um, I'm okay with anything. Again, getting back to South Africa, everything marinated, olive oil, garlic, salt, and pepper, and it was cooked over a real wood, smoky, high heat, screaming hot grill. And man, was it good. Ooh, I'll bet. Well, look, as we fire up that grill, you know, I think about, you know, this country lives on burgers. How do we build a better venison or elk burger? You know, looking at size, thickness, the amount of fat, other elements to consider. I mean, we love burgers in this country. How do we make this the best? Well, just keep in mind that if it's going to be thick, thick is cool, but you just have to go with a little less heat so that you don't have it burnt on the outside and not cooked on the inside. And I'm I'm one of those people that I have no problem eating a medium-rare burger. I'm not afraid of a medium-rare burger. Um, there are those people who I can't, I can't give them $100 to eat a bite of medium-rare just because they grew up eating overcooked meat. And, you know, it's their meat, not mine. Um, but there's a lot of things you can do to add flavor to your deer burger. One of the things I like to do, I'll, I'll take dried mushrooms, run them to a food processor, and it turns into this mushroom powder. And if you mix that up with your burger, you get this really good mushroomy flavor. You can actually, after you've made the burger, you can roll it in this mushroom flour, slap it into a cast iron skillet, and it puts this mushroomy crust on the outside. You can put cheese, herbs, um, uh, tomatoes, any kind of thing that will add a little bit of moisture to that. Um, If you find that it falls apart, just sprinkle a little bit of flour over your ground burger before you start stuffing it and adding ingredients, and that'll help. Have the help. The whole thing will bind together better when you cook it. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, as much as I use the grill, which is a lot here at the Keck House, you know about all I know regarding temperatures of that grill are low, medium, and high. You're talking about temperatures. Talk to us about cooking temperatures from rare to overcooked. How do you, how do you handle it with a thermometer? You got to get a meat thermometer. I mean, get just get a $5 thermometer at the grocery store for starters. If you know, a, a better thermometer is better, but that will, that way you can control how your animal is cooked. And and for the people that say, "Man, I have to eat it cooked all the way through." Um, I've gotten them to try just a little bit of lesser cooked meat. And they just marvel at how tender it is and how not gamey it is. And just if it's if it's a thinner cut of meat, you want to go, I go with a higher heat um, because it's going to cook very quickly. Hit it, brown it on one side, flip it over. Um, on my grill, if I've got a thicker piece of meat or something that takes longer to cook, just make sure that it's at a lower temperature so that it'll cook evenly all the way through. Well, look. We've got to take our final break. We've got lots to talk about, but we're going to run out of time. But hold that thought, because when we come back, I want you to tell us about grilling salmon, grilling fish. And we're going to wrap up this conversation with sporting chef Scott Laseth, and you're listening to Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. It's Rob Keck, and we will be right back. We all have it. Whether it was passed down from our fathers or grandfathers, we knew it was there, inside us. That need, that longing to walk among the wild. But it's more than just our love of the outdoors that keeps us coming back. It's knowing we serve a purpose to give more than we take. 
that we're here to carry on a legacy and become stewards of our wildlife. This place embodies that legacy with over a mile and a half of walkable trails and 35,000 live fish, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and birds to teach and inspire. Stop and you'll feel it. Listen and you'll hear it. Asking you to share the wonder. The Wonders of Wildlife National Museum and Aquarium. Share the wonder. And welcome back to our final segment of Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. We've been having a wonderful discussion on wild fishing, game preparation, and cooking with America's leading authority on the subject with cookbook author, producer, and host of Sporting Chef and Dead Meat TV, Scott Laseth. Scott, I love grilled salmon. Just had some uh, grilled sockeye last week from the upper Kenai River. Talk to us about grilling fish. You know, the, the biggest complaint that I hear about people that grill their fish is that the fish sticks to the grill. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you've got, is your salmon skin on or skin off? Skin on. I put it, I take that skin and I'm going to rub it with olive oil and I'm going to put it skin side down because I'm all about crispy salmon skin. Um, and if somehow that thing does stick to the grill, I can, I'm okay with leaving the skin behind. Um, and it's, even with a with a, a nice big thick piece of sockeye, you don't necessarily have to flip it. However, if your grill is really hot and well oiled, um, when you put fish on there, don't turn it until it's ready to turn. Um, if it sticks to the grill, rather than trying to scrape it up, leave it on the grill longer because once it gets marked really well and gets that those burnt grill marks on there, it'll flip a lot easier. But with a, with a piece of salmon, if, if sticking is your problem, leave it skin side down, throw a little pan over it to cover it, like I was talking about with the other animals, and then and it'll cook all the way through. Um, and then if you just take a little compound butter, take some butter that you've softened, mix it up with some lemon, lime, garlic, um, and, then just, and then let it chill. And you put a couple of slices over that salmon right when it comes off the grill, and then and the Flavored compound butter just runs all over the salmon when you bring it to the plate. Nobody should complain. You know, Scott, I've read where you've said if your freezer has trout from the Reagan years, it's catfish bait. But do you really know why you've been moving it all around in the freezer all these years? Talk to us about that. I know there's listeners out there that probably have some of those trout from the Reagan years. Tell us about that. Well, it's because you don't want to eat it. You waited too long. (laughs) <laughs> um, and if and it's time that you come to the realization that you've raced, wasted that trout and what could have been some good fish is no longer good fish. A trout is good. I eat the trout within three months that I've frozen, three to six months tops. Even if it's been sealed in a food saver, I still like to eat it sooner rather than later. It doesn't get better with age. So, really, it, there's a reason why you keep moving it around. You're just afraid to throw it out and admit that you've wasted it. <laughs> well, you talk just right there about keeping that trout no longer than three months. And I know for many hunters, the question comes, you know, how long can I keep it before it's really not good to eat? Talk to us about that. Well, you got to label and date everything. We've been told that a million times. Like I said, I eat fish within three to six months, usually well before that, and I try and get rid of last season's inventory before the new season begins. 
Um, we've had deer steaks that are three years old and they're fine, but we've also had deer steaks that weren't so good that, uh, that dried out, you know, and if you do get some freezer burn on an old deer steak, you can cut the burnt part off and still make stew out of the rest of it. But really, before you start this season's deal, it's time to clean out the freezer and, and, and make a good meal out of it. I hear you. Good advice. You know, I'm sure there's folks that are looking to, to say, okay, new season, I've got to get a vacuum sealer. I'm tired of this freezer burnt meat. Any advice on buying the right vacuum sealer? You have to you have to assess how often you're going to use it, and you'll find that once you start using a vacuum sealer, you're going to find all sorts of uses for it. So the better vacuum sealers, the one that co- the ones that cost a little bit more, you're going to be happier with, um, and, and you're going to find that whether it's store bought proteins or something you bring home yourself. In general, if you're going to use it a lot, I would not buy the cheapest one on the market. Buy you a good one. Well, Scott, my wife and I, we love to do venison kebabs on the grill. How do you handle the kebabs when the meat, let's say venison backstrap or or turkey breast, you know, it's skewered on the the stick, but we've got onions, squash, tomatoes, bell peppers. It, It seems like the veggies are done before the meat. Give me a tip on how to get this one done right. Well, you've got a couple options. You can cut your vegetables bigger so that it takes them longer to cook. Um, so that you don't have undercooked turkey breast. Um, or what I like to do is I cook my vegetables on separate skewers than the meat. That way I can control it much better. Um, and that way when I go to serve it, you're going to have a meat skewer and a vegetable skewer. And they're both going to be cooked perfectly because we're not trying to cook them on the same, uh, on the same skewer. How smart that is. I, I should have been able to sense, figure right? that out myself. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, you know, my wife is a marinade queen. She's always looking for a new marinade, and uh, it seems like we've always got a piece of meat in soak. Give us your thoughts on some simple marinades that uh, people can make or buy. You know, the stuff, I'm a a big fan of the High Mountain products. Um, They're a sponsor of the TV show, full disclosure, but they have marinades, they have brines, they have all these things that make it foolproof. If you're doing it yourself, Again, it doesn't have to be a great quality olive oil, just cheap olive oil, some garlic, onions, herbs, maybe a little wine in there. You're going to add flavor, um, and it's going to, you know, with, with the proper ratio of water to salt, it's going to actually pass through it. And if you brine your animals or your fish, you want to make sure that you use less salt in your marinade because the brine's going to add salt. But really, um, the things that I avoid are the things that, claim to make your game not taste gamey anymore because the reason your game tastes gamey is either you cooked it too long or you did something wrong in the field or um, there can be other factors whatever the animal might have been eating but um, a good marinade to me will enhance the flavor without disguising the flavor of the game and again olive oil wine maybe a little balsamic vinegar those kinds of things are what i use to make my game taste better well, look, Scott, we are out of time. I just want to thank you so much for being here. Folks, you can catch Scott on the Sportsman's Channel. You can find his cookbooks at uh, Amazon, many other famous bookstores. Scott, just thanks for being with us today. Congratulations on helping millions of outdoorsmen and women enjoy the harvest from the field and out on the water. And, folks, that's going to wrap it up here in Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World. I'm Rob Keck. On behalf of Bass Pro Shops, your adventure always starts right here. Thanks for answering the call. 
that call to conservation and preserving our rich hunting, fishing, and trapping heritage. See you next week. This has been Bass Pro Shops Outdoor World, talking all things outdoors, brought to you by Bass Pro Shops, your outdoor leader. Join us next Saturday and every Saturday for more special guests and unique locations.